This is Leewood Online, a ministry of Leewood Baptist Church, located in the Kansas City area. For more information about us, visit us online at www.leewoodbaptist.com. Good morning. I'm Kyler Salisbury, and today I'm going to read uh, scripture reading. We'll be reading from Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 through 11 which can be found on page 809 in the Pew Bibles. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and only shall you serve and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came, and there were ministering to him. Hey, well, if you are new with us, let me just kind of tell you where we've been. We've been walking through the book of Matthew, and we took a couple of weeks to just slow down a little bit at the end of chapter 3, where we get this image of God as the triune God. We just slowed down and just talked about what is God actually like and how does he exist and that he's one God who exists in three persons. And we spent a week just kind of unpacking the data of that and then spent a week just applying that, basically asking if God is a relational God, then what does that mean for our relationships? And we said this phrase that a mentor once told me that the most important thought you will ever think is what you think when you think about God because it will determine everything else about you. And what Matthew is trying to do is help us see who God really is and what he's really like. And as we come into this chapter, what you see is that Jesus was actually tempted. So the most important thought you'll ever think is what you think when you think about God. Do you ever think about the fact that God stood in your place, that he was tempted? And the scriptures would say he faced all the temptations that we would face. In kind of summary fashion, he faced everything that you and I are faced with. And this passage actually puts that in front of us. And because he had done that, then actually the most important thought we could think is that we have a God who understands what it's like to be tempted and a God who stood in that place for us to make a way for us to be right with God. Matthew wants to present to us this Jesus as the one who did what we should have done, that we did not do, that therefore incurred the wrath of God. And he'll go all the way through the end of the book of Matthew where this one Jesus will not just be tempted, he'll continue to resist temptation and he'll actually die on a cross in our place to make a way for you and I to be forgiven, not just as our example, but as our substitute. The most important thought you'll ever think is what you think when you think about God. This morning we get a chance to celebrate the idea that Jesus is our substitute, that he stood where you and I should have stood to defeat 
the evil one, where we often so often succumb and are blown away by temptation, there he was standing, not just again as an example, but as a substitute. So that's where we're going to go. I want to talk about what Jesus accomplished for us and then what Jesus exposed for us. Let me just pray one more time and we'll dive in to the text. Jesus, we say thank you just right away up front for all that you've already been doing in our time. Thanks for what's been true in the words that we've sung what's been true in the prayers that we've prayed, what's been true in the scripture that we've heard. God, thanks that you're a God of mercy and a God of love, a God who makes a way for sinners to be cleansed and for all of our stains to be washed away. That, that where our sin is great, your mercy is more. And thanks that the scriptures say that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and come to us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So, so we just start by saying thank you And would you let that gratitude actually take us into this text and help us understand it? Father, would you help us apply it to our heart uh, through your Holy Spirit? Um, And I pray that as we exalt Jesus and what he did, uh, we would all be drawn to him. So so God, would would you work, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Matthew chapter 4, it's on page 809 in your pew Bible there. Just look with me in verse 1. He just, this first word, then Matthew says, he wants you to understand this is the next scene after Christ's baptism. So we took a couple of weeks to kind of stop, but this would be an immediate scene. So you have Jesus being presented as the son of God, his identity being revealed that Matthew's actually been arguing for for several chapters. He gets acknowledged as a son of God. And the very next thing that happens, it says he's going into the wilderness led by the spirit to be tempted by the devil. The way Jesus starts his public ministry is first to be identified through his baptism with our sin and brokenness, and then to actually go experience it in the wilderness. And so it says that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you're the Son of God, then command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, it is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I want to stop here for a second. What I want to start with is this understanding of what Jesus accomplished for us in this scene. And it's actually a foreshadow of what he accomplished for us all the way to the cross where he actually would go and die in our place. So, so we read this and some of this makes sense, right? He's 40 days without food. He was hungry. And you go, totally makes sense. But there's a lot more meaning going on here that Matthew wants us to understand. So for the Jewish audience that Matthew's writing to, when they hear 40 and they hear wilderness, they're thrown back to their Old Testaments that they had memorized as children to remember that God sent his people into the wilderness for 40 whole years. And in that place, they faced all kinds of testings in a way that actually God would purify their hearts and he would reveal himself as their provider. And they would journey through that in a way that then he would bring them into the promised land. So very clearly, Matthew wants us to see in this 40 and in this wilderness that Jesus is standing in the place of the people of God, doing what they were supposed to have done, to stand in a place where they hear the voice of the evil one tempting them to go another way and actually resisting that and trusting God instead. But like so many characters in the Old Testament, all the way back to Adam, you see this failure over and over and over again. And Matthew's been really careful to link Jesus with that history. Right? So the very first verse of chapter 1 says that this Jesus comes in the line of David and of Abraham. He's linking us back to the patriarchs and to the kings. 
we see in his birth story this real vivid imagery of Herod trying to execute all the two-born year and below babies, which would throw you back to Moses. You see him quickly going into exile into Egypt, which would put you right there in the book of Exodus. Matthew is laboring to show us here is Jesus, not just coming as the Son of God, but coming to identify with us and to stand where you and I have stood so many times in the face of temptation with this question, is God good? Can I actually trust him with my whole heart? Can I actually follow him? Will he satisfy? That's the question pushed in front of Jesus. And we actually see in the quote that he gives a clear reference back to Deuteronomy chapter 8. So I just want to make sure you understand this. Every Jew in this moment who would have heard this would immediately have gone back to Deuteronomy chapter 8. So let's just flip over there because most of us probably aren't familiar with that text. I know I wasn't as I started to study it this week. So this is on page 152 in your pew Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Now Deuteronomy is written at the end of this wilderness wandering. So you have a whole generation of people that came out of Egypt. They saw all the miracles. They, they watched God part the Red Sea. They saw all the plagues. And in their disobedience, God had them now walk around the desert for 40 years. And the Deuteronomy text is the second giving of the law. It's a, a summary of the law. It comes towards the end of that time where God's reminding his people of what it means to be his covenant people. You get some amazing sermons that Moses preaches. You get lots of demonstrations of God's miracle. And you get some explanation of what God has always been doing. So look with me in verse 2 of chapter 8. It says, And you shall remember the whole way the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you. He led them into the wilderness, just like it says, the Spirit of God led Jesus in the wilderness to test him, it says, to test you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So God used these 40 years to test his people, to to purify his people, to reveal, it says, what's inside their hearts. And he humbled you and he let you face hunger and he fed you with manna, right? He had you experience need and then he met that need with manna, which you didn't even have a category for. You didn't even know about, he says. Nor did your fathers know that he might actually make this this man known among you, right? That man may not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes out of the mouth of the Lord. And then he says, I was faithful to you, right? Your clothing didn't wear out and your feet didn't actually swell, which is amazing. Know, Know that in your heart, as a man disciplines his son, the Lord God disciplined you. That's what this whole thing was about. So, so you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. So, so when Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8 in answer to this first temptation, and we read that the Spirit of God led Jesus into the wilderness to be tested, we go back to that space. And what we see there is God was faithful to his people as he's revealing what's inside their heart, that God cares about what's inside your heart. And he'll actually set up situations in your life, not to tempt you to sin, but to show and to reveal what's inside your heart. And what was designed to actually be a space where God was proven to be faithful over and over and over again, so that against the compelling lie that God's abandoned you, that he doesn't care, he brought you out here to destroy you, they had even daily the experience of a hunger and then a satisfaction of a need and God meeting that. And it says the design of that was so that you would actually trust God with your whole heart and you would follow him. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, what you realize is just like Adam and just like David, and just like Abraham, Moses, and everybody else in those moments where they were faced with trusting God failed. Because there's another player at work here, right? So God designs these testings to actually see what's in our hearts so that we're drawn to him. But the text says there's another agent here, the evil one, the devil, who actually has a different agenda in the wilderness, 
When you're facing temptation and struggle, you have God in that space trying to move towards your heart to show you that he is trustworthy and he's good, that he provides for you, that he loves you. And you have an evil one that begins to whisper in your ear things that actually aren't true about God. They're not true about you, but they are so compelling. Like, you're hungry, aren't you? And you go like, man, 40 days, so hungry. In that space, he ties the hunger to some questions about who God is and what he's like and what he does. And now you see kind of the essence of temptation. I want to get to what Jesus models for us and what he exposed in the temptation, but not before we move on the face of what's going on in this, this text here, that Jesus accomplished for us what we could not accomplish on our own. Friends, the Old Testament is written to us not to show us all the ways that we could make ourselves right with God and all the rules that if we keep them, then God will be pleased with us. It's actually designed to show us that for a millennium, God's people couldn't do enough to make themselves pure. And there weren't enough sacrifices of bulls and goats to actually fully cleanse them. The stain was so deep inside, they needed something from the outside to come and rescue them. So the promise of the Messiah is woven into all these stories of failure. There's a promise that God's going to come and rescue and love in the middle of all the brokenness. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that. God's answer to all of our brokenness, all of the places where we've struggled to be obedient, all the doubts that we've had about God's goodness, his answer is to take on flesh, come like this little baby, live our life, be the perfect son who obeyed so he could be our perfect sacrifice and substitute. What Matthew wants to put in front of us so vividly is here is Jesus, the truer and better Israel, the truer and better Moses, truer and better David, truer and better Abraham, truer and better Adam and Eve, when faced with questions of food and God's reliability, would hold to his love of God and would actually resist the evil one. So so the war that was declared in the manger of Messiah King coming in to shake and shatter the kingdoms of this world is now still going on in the wilderness. He declared war in that manger. And what you see now is this war is raging on as Jesus stands in our place in the wilderness to actually experience like faithfulness on our behalf so you and I could be forgiven and free. At the very same wilderness wandering, God has an agenda to kind of show the heart, Deuteronomy 8 says, and the evil one has an agenda to actually disqualify. But God intends for Jesus to be seen as the one who could stand in our place to validate his Messiahship. And the evil one has an agenda to disqualify Jesus. So there's a cosmic war going on. I want to walk through like some DNA of temptation and give you some ideas here of like what Jesus exposes for us. But, but that will only do us um, a partial good if you don't stop and recognize that what Jesus accomplished in standing in our place actually is for your salvation. So he didn't just come to show you the DNA of temptation so you could think better and try harder. He actually came to stand in your place so you could be forgiven and free. And if we start right there, that's actually the main idea. If you hear nothing else, forget the rest of the sermon. Jesus stood in your place and accomplished on your behalf what you most desperately needed him to do because you could not save yourself. Your sin was so deep. The problem was so Long. It was just so heinous. It was so broken. It was so dark. And for so long, for millennium, that has been our story. The only solution was God Himself come and live this life and die this death so that we could be forgiven and free. And if we start there, then when it comes to talking about temptations and patterns of temptations and what happens, you and I are actually more free to be more honest to where we actually face temptation. 
Because we're not saying, here's five keys, and if you know these keys, then God will love you because you'll avoid temptation and be purified by yourself. We're not saying that. What we're saying is, here's the way the evil one has always tempted God's people. Could you be aware of that? But could you rest in the fact that Christ already accomplished for you a way for you to be forgiven and free? Sometimes I think about like um, repelling, not because I'm like an avid repeller. I think it's been since middle school since I repel, but go back to like movies you've seen or something like that, right? So you strap on this harness, which is super uncomfortable, and then you clip into some sort of rope, and you're lowered down the edge of a cliff or into some cave if you're watching like a National Geographic show, right? So you see these guys are in harnesses, and they're able to go deep, 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 and go low into either a canyon or down the edge of a cliff because they're secured. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that harness for you. It's what holds you secure so you are free to go deeper into what's going on inside my soul. Why am I so tempted by this? Why do I buy that lie every single time? Why do I keep hurting my family this way? Why do I keep looking at that? And I know it doesn't satisfy, but I feel so drawn and actually feel compelled in ways that feel unhuman for me to actually bite into that and take that temptation. Why does that happen? You're not asking about righteousness. You're not asking about your identity. You're not even asking about are you loved or not. So you can clip into the gospel and you can ask those darker, deeper questions that you and I tend to avoid. And if you're building your identity on your performance, then you can't ask those questions. They're just too threatening, right? So what's wrong with you is too, too tough of a question if you're trying to justify yourself. But if you're already forgiven because Christ has already stood in your place, then you can go deep into genera- generational sins. You can actually acknowledge stuff in our culture that is, has trained you a certain way. You can engage stuff that like you see in the news and go, man, where is that actually in my heart? You can explore the ideas of systemic racism and materialism and, and issues with sexuality. You can explore deep, dark things and it not be a threat to your identity, actually be a pathway to freedom. So, so I want you kind of in your mind to go, hey, all right, what Christ has accomplished is a way for me to be clipped in and harnessed and secure. So now I can talk about what Christ has actually exposed in this passage. He's accomplished something beautiful, and it's, it's taken several chapters for Matthew to actually lay it out for us, and he'll actually keep doing it throughout the book. He wants to show over and over and over again how Jesus stood in our place, which is such great news for those of us who wonder, is there hope? Will I ever change? Because what he accomplished didn't just kind of set us free one time. It actually broke the power of sin and death and hell on our behalf. It actually gave a counter-narrative to the narrative that, that we're on our own, that we're orphans spiritually and we have to take care of ourselves. It pr- produces a good news of the gospel in our hearts that we can hear to help us actually kind of turn towards God and begin to trust him. So it breaks the power of sin. It actually makes it possible for us to be saved. What Jesus accomplished in this passage is the beginning of what he would finally accomplish on the cross where he stood in our place. Okay. I think I've summarized that like 19 times. Are you tracking with me? I want you to get this. Because we can give you five tips to avoid temptation. But if you don't get this, you go to hell a more disciplined person. Boundaries won't save you. Discipline won't save you. Accountability won't save you. You need a savior. Being more wise to your own addictive patterns won't actually bring salvation. What you need is something much deeper. Praise God, he accomplished it for you through his son Jesus. We've sung about it, we've prayed about it, and now it's just kind of walk through, sitting in that space where we're rested in that. Let's then ask, okay, so what does he expose for us, right? How does he actually do battle here? What does he accomplish for us? And I wrestled with like three keys and five keys and nine keys and 12 keys, and I don't know. 
Here's the deal. I don't think there's like a DNA of temptation. I think what we see in here is a pretty helpful summary. But, but like a crafty like hunter or fisherman who has lots of lures and baits at his disposal, the evil one has customed ways by which he tempts each one of us. So, so to give just five keys that Jesus faced in the desert when he was hungry might miss you where you are. So if I can zoom out just a little bit and be a little more general to give you some categories, then you might find your struggle with anger in that space, your, your struggle with sexual sin in that space, your, your struggle with pride or materialism or, or your struggle with like self-loathing. You could find that in the passage because it's not just a specific one, one size fits all. I want to give you like a general pattern, right? So I had in my mind just fishing all week long. I'm not even a very good fisherman. I love fishing with my son just to spend time with him, but I'm terrible. I have no idea what to do. I don't even know what lures you should kind of use for what kinds of fish. I couldn't tell you what's in our tackle box and why it's there. We actually went to Bennett Springs one time to fly fish and got like moved out of the area because we had the wrong tackle in the wrong place. And this guy graciously like, hey, jump in my golf cart. Let me drive you like basically like drive you over to like the remedial fishing areas where we stood. And he gave me at one point a little jar of orange balls and said, put this on your hook and the, uh, the trout love it. And I was like, never in a million years will I have guessed an orange ball is like the way you're going to catch. So I, I don't know lures is what I'm saying, but, but I know you have an evil one and an enemy that knows you and actually for millennium has been honing his craft of tempting you. He knows your vulnerabilities and your exposures and he knows where you feel hungry so, so take your story and impose it over a couple of things as we talk, as we walk through this passage and see what Jesus really exposes about temptation. That's the framework that I want to use. What does he expose for us? So come back with me into verse 2 of chapter 4. It's on page 809. He says this, And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Right, and in that hunger, the tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, which was just established and spoken to him a few verses before, questioning his identity, he takes his hunger and he ties it to his identity. If you're the Son of God, then command these stones to become loaves of bread. First thing, the evil one plays on our hunger. There's a real hunger, right? It's 40 days without food, right? It's a legitimate thing. Your temptations often make sense to you. You're a rational person. You don't do anything that you don't want to do. There's a real need, a real hunger, a real thirst, a real longing that actually you have as a human. And that hunger is not sin. The temptation to sin is to fill that hunger with some illegitimate way. But the first thing about temptation that you have to see is that that's actually appealing to real needs that you have. Right? These are not just like nebulous, random ideas. These are things that experience from your childhood and from where you are now as an adult and what you've experienced through your career and what you experience in your body. It's questions that are custom to the hunger that you feel. And you've heard these axioms of like, never go grocery shopping when you're hungry or this HALT acronym of when you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. That's when you're most susceptible. What our evil one does is taps into legitimate human hunger and begins to lie to us, which is the second thing he begins to test and see if you will actually believe that God loves you in the middle of the hunger. Right, so here's this hunger he feels, and he says, hey, you don't have to be hungry. Why don't you actually do something about this? And embedded in that is this sub-question of, if God really loved you, why would you be hungry? Why don't you do something about that? So now we go to another scene with food, and we go to Adam and Eve in the garden. And we think about what's happening in that moment where the evil one comes and says to them, hey, did God really tell you you can't eat of all these trees? Like, oh, no, no, no. It's just this one. 
And then he begins to whisper in their ear, like, why, why would he withhold this from you? He knows that if you took of this fruit, you'd be more like him. And by the way, hey, he hates that. So it brings questioning of who God is in the middle of their legitimate hunger. There's a question of, does God love me? That gets whispered in your ear. Right? So it's a legitimate need. It's a question of, does God love me? And then the evil one traffics in half-truths. So we'll go to the next section, right? He, he goes through that. He quotes Deuteronomy 8 in that space to actually defeat the evil one. Satan doesn't stop. It says in verse 5, the devil took him to the holy city and set him up on a pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you're the son of God, same thing again, then throw yourself down. Like, prove this. Take matters into your own hands. And he quotes stinking Psalm 91. So this is the evil one who, by the way, knows the Bible better than you, which is sometimes problematic. For you, Because you hear things like, if God's a God of love, then he would never tell you no when it came to your sexuality. If God's a God of love, then surely he wants you happy. Right? So the enemy traffics in half-truths, right? He quotes Psalm 91, 11, and 12. It says this, He will command the angels concerning you, and of their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Hey, Jesus, let me take you to a space, right? Let me actually literally elevate the temptation from the ground where I'm talking to you about bread. Let me put you on the temple. Let me ratchet it up. And let me speak into your hunger and the question of God's love and ask a half-truth to you. Isn't God the kind of God who promises to protect his people? Well, if that's the case, why don't you prove that? If God's the kind of God who actually loves his people and takes care of them, then why don't you do something in your own power to prove that? He taps into that hunger. He deceives us about whether or not God loves us. And then he traffics in these half-truths, which makes us incredibly vulnerable. Because it's like sounds so familiar. It sounds so compelling. And what's fascinating about the way Jesus answers him, most, most translators would say, it also is written, right? So verse 7, Jesus said to them, ESV just says, and again it is written. But you could translate that, it's also written. So he combats this half-truth with another truth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So what Jesus does in the face of that temptation is not just take a half-truth or one truth. He combines it with the other truths of Scripture. Does God love you? Yes. Oh, yes. Do you get to determine what that looks like in your life and what will make you happy? No. Because for millennium, right, we've missed it. For millennium, we've gone to things that we thought were going to make us happy that actually left us bankrupt and more hungry. They actually didn't just satisfy, didn't just not satisfy. They actually left us more famished and more in need. So no, we don't know what it looks like to actually just trust God's love. He has to tell us. And so Jesus actually quotes Scripture back to the evil one in this half-truth. And just stopping there for a second gives us a chance to say, hey, what are the half-truths? about God that you've heard for a long time that have let you actually go down roads of temptation where you're now holding God in contempt because they haven't worked. And what's going on in this passage here is the exposing of the temptation that, that an evil one traffics in half-truths. And, and I would guess because you're clipped in and you're not in danger of actually exploring your own heart, if you took some time, there's lots of distortions of who God is and what he says about you that you just believe. Uh, like, like uh, here's one, God helps those who help themselves. It's not actually in the Bible. It sounds like it could be in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. Uh, hard work brings a profit. Yeah, absolutely, man, so work hard. But if you don't partner that with other things, you'll actually move towards workaholism, right? You'll move towards, like, sacrificing your family for material things. 
Right? There's, there's actually a space of justice right, where evil should be dealt with. And if you don't know the rest of the scriptures, that you should actually trust God to be the one that deals with that. Then you'll be a resentful, bitter person actually believing, hey, this really matters. This is sinful. This should be dealt with. That's true. What's also true is God asks us to let him deal with that. Think about just for a moment the things where you feel really stuck. And I bet you, you could trace some half-truths that have been embedded in your soul in that place. And again, we're not saying like that makes you stupid or we're not saying that makes you foolish. You have a very real enemy that's been whispering in your ear for a very, very, very long time. And so because you're tied into the gospel, you can go a little bit deeper into your heart and go, where did I first hear that? Where where did I trust that with? And how has that played out in my life? And where did I actually find that more compelling than the idea that God could care for me, right? Because it's a question of real hunger, and it's a question about God's love for us. And in that space, he speaks half-truths, which are actually bold-faced lies about who God is and what he actually promises us. And if we're not careful in that hunger, we'll bite. So again, this fishing illustration, right? This lure that's dangling, it looks like it's going to actually satisfy. It actually promises us something And I don't know enough about fish, but some of these lures just look kind of bananas to me. I'm like, seriously? He's going to be tricked by that spinning metal thing? And what you realize is we're actually not very discriminate. We'll take a hold of anything. So I went with Lucas. We did some striper fishing in Lake Texoma, Oklahoma. I don't even know what you do this. I don't know what you do. So we're fishing. It's a kind of bass. Apparently, they're very aggressive. They love to snap onto lures. So here's the kind of things we're doing. He's cutting up fish and dropping over the boat. At one point, our guide is taking his stick and beating it on the bottom of the boat. We're we're fishing. Our fish are in the water. The way he's luring them is to beat the boat with this rod to get that noise to actually have them come. And we caught a ton of fish. It was a lot of fun. And I just saw in that moment, like, man, fish are really dumb. And then I thought, man, where am I dumb? That It's like noises get my attention and make me go that direction. Where are like the noises and the baits, the spinning metal things? And if you just stop for a second and go, I don't actually eat metal. Metal's not part of my natural diet as a fish. Why would I ever eat this spinning metal thing? But actually, there's so much hunger and there's so many things you're longing for that have been twisted and distorted. We find ourselves biting on all kinds of half-truths and baits. So, so Jesus exposes that. I spent some time time there because I think actually the place where we are most blind and in a world where we get sound bites that we want, where our algorithms on our social media actually set us up to hear more of what we already believe, what we already want, and take us into extremes, you're actually conditioned to hear more and more and more half-truths that you find compelling. So I've Googled weight loss enough that every ad on any video I watch is this same dude promising me if I bought his program, I'm going to be great. Every single time, right? And, every, and I almost click it. I'm like, oh, no, no, no. He's not. And that's basically, I'm trained actually towards this temptation. And you have been trained with half-truths. All right, that's the second kind of scene of vision. Let, let's move on in that space. And what happens in the next scene is that we're told by the evil one to take matters into our own hands. Jesus takes this half-truth and Satan pushes it on him and says, hey, if God really loves you, you wouldn't have this hunger. Therefore, you should take matters into your own hands. The temptation is to fix your own hunger your own way, is what I think is going on with the way Satan tempts him, right? which we hear all the time. And it's rooted in a suspicion of who God is. And this half-truth actually makes us more open to the idea that we need something we don't have and that God should give it to us. And if he's not going to give it to us, then we're very justified to go ahead and take it ourselves. Because after all, it's hunger. It's like the way God made me, right? Surely God wouldn't make me with this hunger and then not let me satisfy that in some way that I actually seem 
and deem as appropriate. Sounded familiar all to you? Isn't God a God of justice? Why would he let this happen? What about your sexuality? What about your longings? What about your anger? What about your bitterness? Doesn't God care about that? And wouldn't he want you to do something about that on your own? Because after all, you felt this way for so long, maybe he doesn't actually really even care about you. Maybe he's actually never going to satisfy this. Maybe he actually wants you to do it yourself. Maybe God's actually given you free will and free agency so that you can do something and you can fix this yourself. Sound familiar? In those spaces, those lures are dropped in the water all around us. And this temptation to, in the middle of the lie, take matters in our own hands is what's going on in that scene. And then finally, quickly, what happens that Jesus actually exposes to us is the hook that's always in temptations is one of false worship. So these temptations elevate, right, from, from bread to this pinnacle on the temple. Actually, now he takes them up in verse 7 and in verse 8 and shows him the entire universe, entire world, and says, you can have all of this if you'll bow down and worship me. Look at me in verse 8. He says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all of these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him shall you serve only. What we see in this fifth space here, the fifth kind of exposure, is the hook that is in every temptation is one of false worship. You think it's just about your biological needs. You think it's just about your relational tension, but it's actually the hook is one of worship. Uh, To make bread yourself, to have God be tested, all of that is to worship something other than God. So, So it's not just pornography. It's not, it's not just a little bit of bitterness that you can hold on to. It's not just a little bit of racism because you, it's the way that you grew up. It's not just some materialism. It, it's not just some little ism. It's actually a hook from the evil one designed to take your life out with false worship. What Jesus exposes for us is that what's always been on the table here, what always he was driving for, the evil one was always driving for a sense of false worship. And it's increasing every step, right? We have an unrelenting evil one who has an agenda to not just disqualify Jesus, but to disqualify us and to get us to doubt God at the very essence of who he is so that we will not worship him, but worship something else. There's lots there we could unpack. Those five things I want to put in front of you, right? It appeals to real need and real hunger. It's a question of does God love you if he makes you hungry? It's a traffic of a half-truth that you could hold on to. It's a temptation to take matters into your own hands. And what actually exposes the root of all of that is a false worship, a temptation to worship something other than God himself. I think that's what we see exposed in this passage, or at least that's some of what we see exposed. Okay, so this puts us in a really precarious spot because we've said that Jesus accomplished something for us, and now we've talked about these temptations that are exposed. And so you've got a couple of choices right now in your heart that are actively spinning. How will you respond to this? Like, what, what will you do with this? And there's some of us that are wired in such a way that our, our bent is now to think through boundaries and disciplines and kind of analyze things and to kind of stay in our head. But what Jesus exposes here is the only way you counter false worship is with true worship. So before we go into like what you should change about your life and what you should stop doing and start doing and where these false lies are and how you expose them, you stop first and say, wait, the only antidote to this whole idea of worshiping something that won't save me is to stop and worship the one true God. What Jesus calls out in this answer to the temptation is that you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus gets us out of our heads and he again exposes what's in our hearts and says what God is after is actually your affections being drawn to God 
you actually having your heart stirred towards him, that's the thing that will lower the temptation to your materialism and your racism and your issues with sexuality and your bitterness and your brokenness. All of that stuff loses its allure, not through boundaries and discipline, not through fear, fear of getting caught, right? It'll only get you so far. You've been on those business trips where you were confident no one would find out and you know how the disciplines and the boundaries you put in place actually almost evaporate in a moment to restrain you. And instead, what Jesus points us to is the place where we could actually find life and health, and it's through worship. And again, because the gospel harness is on us, we can admit that without shame and make it a request and a place of actually starting to worship. Say, God, you've done all of this work, and and I doubt you, and I hear half-truths, and I wonder if you actually care. And now I actually stop and remember who you are. And we celebrate in communion, right? He's the kind of God who stood in our place and died in such a way that actually makes a way for us to be not just forgiven and free, but loved and accepted and changed. Far from withholding from us, he actually gave himself fully to us. So we rehearse true worship of who God is, not just as the antidote, but as a way that actually satisfies our hearts so that we're not so hungry. So that when the evil one says, hey, there's that hunger, isn't there? You can stop and go, man, not one that God can't meet. Not a hunger that God has given me that he actually is not mindful of. Not a hunger that I experience that he's not behind doing something in my life. The same wilderness temptation God himself has designed for his son to actually expose and reveal his true sonship, to strengthen him and to validate him. That, That very same hunger was meant to actually draw Jesus to the Father. And the evil one has another agenda. Take that hunger and actually expose it and say, maybe actually God doesn't love you. That's the essence of that. And so worship is the thing that quiets the lies of the evil one. So, so, so what do we do? Let me just throw out a couple of things here. Can you acknowledge that you actually have needs and hungers and bring them to God and ask him to help you? Don't deny the hungers that you have. Don't deny the needs that you have. They will only metastasize inside your soul and they will lead to more and more and more like broken expressions of satisfying your own hunger. Friends, God's not said that hunger is bad. It's just that your, your hunger is meant to take you to God himself. So would you acknowledge your hunger? You don't have to grit your teeth. You don't have to keep trying hard through rules and regulations. You actually acknowledge it and you bring it to God. That's one. Number two, this whole text is designed to make us aware that we have a very real enemy. And I would guess you didn't think about that much last week. It was just a TV show. It was just your bouncing your bank book. It was just you interacting with somebody. It was just you impatient somewhere. It was just you looking at something on the computer. You didn't think about the idea that there's this roaring lion that's prowling to actually destroy you. The scriptures are saying, hey, stop for a moment and be aware there's a very real battle going on. So like a simple application is just be aware that you have a real enemy that has plots and schemes and agendas to actually take you out. Not not to give you like lesser Um, options for your hunger, but actually to poison and to destroy, right? You don't fish for fun. He's not playing games. The real evil one that for millennium has been taunting God's people is after you. And to live your life just aware of that, right? Which means nothing is neutral, right? You have a response either bringing your heart to God or, or to the evil one. Those are your only two choices, Always, But we live our lives as if there's not a real evil one. And we're basically figuring it out on our own. And we're just living our lives. Can we stop for a second and say, hey, what if that shiny metal spinning thing isn't actually just there by accident? 
What if that orange ball that cast off a scent that I feel so drawn to, what if that's not there just by accident? What if there's actually intentionality behind that? Can I be aware that I have a real enemy? And not live in fear of that, but actually just be simply aware. Again, clipped in by this gospel harness, you can stop and say, hey, where have I been blind to that? And that not be a voice of shame, it'd be an invitation to freedom. So just check right now where your heart's at. If you're feeling a ton of shame, that is the evil one saying to you, look at this, you can't even do this right. You've known this before. You've heard this passage so many times. How dare you? If that's the voice you're hearing right now in this moment, that is the voice of the evil one who even wants to take a call to trust Jesus and flip that on you in some half-truth and tempt you with it. If you're hearing, oh man, I needed that. I needed to hear that Jesus died in my place. I needed to hear that there's a way for me to be secure apart from my behavior. I needed to hear that there's actually a worship of one true God that would satisfy. That's the voice of the Spirit of God. Would you just stop and go, how are you trying to apply this? And even now, in this moment, our our evil one is fishing. He's casting. You can almost hear the He's after your heart and your soul. Even now, in this moment, will you simply be aware, and then learn to spot the half-lies, the half-truths that are so compelling to you. We want to live in community, actually, to have people help us with this so we can be honest about our brokenness and go, man, I tend to get stuck and hung up when it comes to issues with anger. When it comes to issues that are rooted in anxiety, when I'm afraid, I am most susceptible. Hey, when I feel shame, that's the place where I actually feel most vulnerable. When I'm not sure I'm secure, that's the place where I'm most tempted to fill in the blank, right? Would you grow in your awareness of what half-truths are most compelling to you? And number four, would you actually feed your soul on the Word of God, right? It's the really obvious thing here. Jesus combats these lies with God's Word, and he didn't just like Google them in the moment and go, what's a good verse about things with like illegitimate temptations for bread? He, he knew them. They were in his guts. He'd been marinating in God's Word. And so a clear application of a text like this is for us to be a people of the book, to feed our souls on God's word, to actually let that be the place that we, we are satisfied, where our hunger is actually beginning to be quenched and satisfied because of the words that come from the very mouth of God, which is this book. And if you're going like, I don't even know how to do that, right? We're doing this Bible reading plan together through the New Testament. You can go online and you can download it. You can sign up for some emails that would help you. We're finishing up Luke this week and starting the book of Acts. Like jump in with us this next year and begin to feed your soul because you desperately need it. You are starving. You're so hungry, and you're so tempted to look to so many other things, and God actually wants to feed you with himself and with his word, which brings us to this last one, which is cultivate a heart of true worship to combat the lie that God doesn't love you, that there's actually something you need outside of him. It's the reason why we gather on Sunday mornings. It's the reason why we sing songs that you can sing at home. Actually, this week I've just been praying for you that you would sing the songs that we sing on Sundays in your home because they're songs that will feed your soul about who God is and what he's like. To cultivate a heart of worship that sees God for who he is and takes him at his word and puts at the center of that what we celebrate in communion every week. That this God that we're worshiping didn't just give us a bunch of rules to follow. He actually stood in our place, died. He went through the temptations that we should have gone through and been come out the other side faithful and we were unfaithful. He took the wrath of all that upon himself He died, his body was broken, his blood was shed so that we could actually be forgiven and free. You worship him because of what he did. You worship him for this harness. The very idea that you're secure and safe because of what Christ has done. Like clip that thing on every day as an awareness piece for you to remember what Christ has done. So actually 
let's do it now. When we take communion every Sunday and we're getting in the habit of this as a community to just stop and celebrate and go, man, what am I reminding myself of? And again, I've tried to labor more than you hear like five things or four things. I want you to hear what Christ has done for you. And communion is this God-given, ordained means by which we celebrate his broken body and his shed blood. It's a, a regular reminder for God's people of how he has satisfied our hunger. Isn't it fascinating that he gives us bread? He gives us drink to actually satisfy physically? in ways that remind us of what's true spiritually and what he accomplished for us. And so we remember this every week. And so if you didn't grab one, we'll have some time in a second. There's some up here in the front, some in the back of the room as well. And we upgraded our little chalices. So the ones that don't say gluten-free are not gluten-free, but they're way easier to open than the purple ones if you've been around. Sorry, we're getting there. Hey, these are open for everybody. In the space of where you trust Jesus, what we want to do as a community is just start to apply a passage like this through worship. And say, Jesus, you broke your body and you shed your blood so that I could be forgiven and free. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, this is reserved for Christians. And let me actually make that an invitation to you to trust Christ. It's not an empty ritual, right? There's no magic in this little cup. It doesn't do anything for you except help you say out loud, this is what I'm trusting in. So if you're not trusting Jesus, don't, don't take of this drink and this bread. But, but I want to say that to you actually as a way, well, maybe today you would trust him. Maybe today for the first time you'd realize, man, you're really, really hungry and you've tried so many other things and nothing is satisfied because you're actually, your heart's designed to be satisfied only in God himself. And now you're hearing it's not through rules and regulations, but through the sacrifice of Jesus. Maybe you'll trust his sacrifice for you today. If that's you, man, take communion with us for the first time and let's talk about it after the service. But for all those who call yourself a Christian, I would love for you to take communion. Wes is going to come up and just play over us for a couple of minutes. Just going to let you do this on your own. You peel off the the little film there and take the bread. It's a reminder to you that Christ broke his body. And he sacrificed himself on the cross. He bore the wrath that you deserved. And then you peel back the next little layer there and you drink this juice. And it's a reminder to you of the shed blood of Christ. That what he did on the cross actually accomplished your forgiveness and salvation. And with the sweetness of that still in your mouth, would you let that begin to actually stir worship in your heart? Because that's how we fight against the evil one. We expose the lie that God's not loving or not good through remembering what he did to show his love for us. So I'm going to pray. Wes is going to come up. Uh, we'll take some time just where you are, and then we'll sing together. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thanks for what you did. Thanks first for what you accomplished on our behalf, and thanks for what you exposed in this scene. God, we have so many times taken the bait of the evil one. And thanks for making a way for that to be forgiven and to be healed. Thanks for making a way for us to actually be seen and loved through your own sacrifice. We worship you now for your broken body and your shed blood. Would you nourish our souls with that? And would you stir genuine worship in us in such a way that we actually are satisfied with you? So come meet your people now and draw those who don't know you. Would you draw them to yourself, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. you for joining us online. Leeway Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. For more information about us and our ministry, please visit us at www.leewoodbaptist.com.